Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I am Dr. Peter Spiegel. At long last, there is a real possibility to improve and make more humane the methods and requirements involved in drug development. And I am referring to legislative action that is happening now. The FDA Modernization Act would amend and update the Federal Food and Cosmetics Act, which contains many archaic and ineffective regulations and would open the floodgates for innovation and cost savings, as well as benefiting animals. I am pleased to welcome Wayne Paselli, president of Center for a Humane Economy. Wayne is also founder at Animal Wellness Action and CEO of Animal Wellness Foundation. Hello, Wayne. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Our pleasure. Wayne, let's begin, if you would, by describing the current process and regulations related to drug development and ultimate approval in the United States. Sure, Peter. This is a very important uh, element uh, to go into to understand the depth of the problem that exists with animal testing and, and drug development. So in 1938, the Congress passed the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. And again, just by that name, you can tell that the United States thought that it was important for safety purposes, as well as efficacy or effectiveness purposes, uh, to regulate drug development. Uh, we don't want drugs to be killing people. Uh, we don't want the drugs to have other adverse reactions. And we want to be sure that uh, patients who, who, who are getting drugs are getting some sort of benefit as advertised. So again, the two screens for the United States in regulating pharmaceutical companies and other drug developers are safety and efficacy. So the 1938 law, you know, that was a depression era statute a long time ago. It was 83 years ago. And essentially at that time, the best practice for safety testing was to use whole living organisms, non-human animals, as a way to try to gauge whether the drug could be harmful or even lethal to people. So we started using the animals as screeners before the drug would then go to human clinical trials, where you get volunteers who agree to participate in a study to see the effectiveness and safety of the drug. So that first standard, the preclinical or non-clinical testing has been going on for 83 years and all the drug developers, Merck, Pfizer, Moderna, all the names that we're very familiar with, they all have to do extensive animal tests in order to get a drug approved by the FDA for use in the marketplace. And those animal tests typically involve rodents, so mice and rats, but then also beagles, uh, non-human primates, and other animals. And I believe, even though this whole animal testing realm is shrouded in secrecy, that this is the largest category of privately conducted testing, uh, that essentially you have vast numbers, millions of animals a year used for drug development protocols in the United States. So you mentioned 83 years this has been going on. What sustains it? What are the factors that have been keeping this uh, going on? Well, I think, number one, you haven't had an animal advocacy organization with the, the moxie and the political know-how to turn this problem around. And you haven't had the pharmaceutical companies really challenge the law because that's what they've been steeped in as well. So the FDA you know, 
has been thinking about animal testing and doing animal testing and accepting all the animal testing data when they're working with the drug developers. And then the, the drug developers are using the animal testing data because that's what the regulator wants. So it became a very, you know, circular sort of process. And until the Center for Humane Economy and Animal Wellness Action got involved with a very specific legislative proposal to eliminate the animal testing mandate and then to allow the best practice to be used, whether it's non-human animals or animals. So I, I did not think it was politically achievable to ban all animal testing. I mean, this is it's been 100% animal testing. So we have to look at this incrementally. And the first essential step is to eliminate the mandate. There are other good groups that have been working on this issue, but no one has really had a pointed bill to address the animal testing mandate. And frankly, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of success on the animal testing issue. Although in 2016, there was a bill that reformed our chemical testing standards. Yeah. And Senator Cory Booker was instrumental in, of, of New Jersey, instrumental in getting a standard, which I worked on in my prior organization, with my prior organization, to create a standard that if you're going to do safety testing for chemicals, chemicals that are in our desks and in our lamps and that are in all the products that we use in our daily lives, that you must try to use non-animal testing methods to assess safety. And only if those are not workable, can you use animals? That is at least a better threshold than doing animal testing every single time. That creates a preference for non-animal testing. And frankly, uh, Peter, all of the major institutions that are involved, academic institutions like the University of Arizona or the University of Michigan, uh, federal agencies like FDA or NIH, or even the pharmaceutical companies like Merck and Pfizer, all of them subscribe to a long-standing framework called the three R's when it comes to animal testing, refining techniques to minimize pain and distress to the animals, reducing the number of animals and protocols. So if you can use 10 beagles rather than 20, there's a moral reason to do that. And finally, replacing is the third R. When you have an available, workable, scientifically grounded alternative, use that alternative and replace. So that already creates a preference. And the supposition here is that animal testing is a moral problem, that you're taking a living, feeling, sentient being, you're confining and keeping that animal captive, and then you're subjecting him or her to various torments, both physical and psychological. We recognize that as a society. Now, we've made a general decision as a nation that we're willing to do that for the benefit of human health and welfare. But this statute even undermines that because now the government is telling private businesses that they've got to use one strategy, even though many of these non-animal tests are clearly superior to animal tests. So I think we have the science on our side. We have logic. Uh, we have animal welfare on our side. And I think that this bill stands a very good chance of getting enacted in 2022. Wayne, before we uh, discuss the bill in a little bit more detail and, and where it stands and who's involved in it, I, I wonder if you would uh, take a moment and uh, tell, maybe you can describe one or two of the prior instances in uh, history of drug development where things really went awry. Well, there are, there are legions of examples. I mean, we know just in our practical daily lives, right? You think of 
you know, pet owners, uh, you know, animal uh, guardians, you know, you give chocolate to a dog, it could be poisonous, you know, poinsettias. Uh, There are so many examples where we know that, you know, the animals get sick from this. We have a different reaction. The translation issues are problematic. And, And frankly, Peter, the data are incredible. Just not, I'll get to a specific example, but you know, when, when, if you take the number 20 and you take 20 drugs tested in animals and they pass muster in the animal tests. So for safety and efficacy purposes, the, the, the drug uh, testing um, in the animals works okay. And then it goes to human clinical trials. The data show that it fails in human clinical trials 19 of 20 times. So there's a 95% failure rate. But of course, you know, one of the, there are many, many examples, but, you know, historically, uh, people of my generation and your generation, you know, we heard about thalidomide yep. um, and, and that tested okay with animals. And then it went into pregnant women and it resulted in, you know, very, very adverse reactions and, and um, uh, newborns with, uh, with many visible um, health problems. So the, the cases are, are many, but the data, you know, I think anecdotes are important, but looking at the data, 19 of 20 cases, a 95% failure rate. So what this also tells me, Peter, is that we're making a change to our drug development system. And people are saying, you know, there's always, there are always the forces that say, oh, we shouldn't change anything. Right. And, and I, I my response is, why is it acceptable to have a 95% failure rate? Plus, that's just that's then showing failure rate in human clinical trials, but then you still have so many adverse reactions to drugs that are advertised by drug developers. Yeah. Do you know that, that uh, the fourth leading cause of death in the United States is adverse reactions to drugs? So on both ends of this process, I mean, there's an incredible failure rate, which means that drug developers are wasting a lot of money on failed experiments. And that money could be used to do good R&D work to allow us to be healthier with palliatives and cures for things that are afflicting so many of us, so many of our spouses, so many of our family members, so many of our friends. And then on the back end, it's going through this process and we're not all that safe. I mean, you, you know, I listen to these drug uh, commercials on television and you have this, you know, nice sounding narration and beautiful music and beautiful families, but you know, 40 seconds of the 60 seconds are possible adverse reactions to the drugs. So to me, the drug development system is very compromised right now. This is a tweak to that system that is so valuable because it's putting science in the top place. And it's saying, okay, we're not just going to use animal testing as a reflex. When we have a lung on a chip or kidney on a chip, human cell based microphysiological systems that we know have been, have proved superior in so many respects to animal testing. We are speaking with Wayne Paselli, and after the break, we're going to allow Wayne to describe in detail the legislation and uh, learn more about what you can do to uh, help push this along and uh, enter a new era, which will uh, benefit people and animals. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, this is Dr. Lori, and today's Animals Today Minute features the world's largest land carnivore, the polar bear. 
Mainly receiving nourishment in the form of seals, these majestic Arctic dwellers may reach heights of 8 to 9 feet and weigh as much as 1,700 pounds. Their adaptations to surviving the extreme climate include very thick white fur, even on their feet, black skin to absorb the warmth of the sun, a thick layer of blubber beneath the skin, and large flat front feet, which aid in swimming. Newborns weigh only about a pound and stay with their mothers about two years. Polar bears are classified as an endangered species with only 20 to 25,000 left in the world. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. Welcome back. Wayne Paselli, how can pharmaceutical drug development be improved? Well, one big improvement is for the United States Congress to pass the FDA Modernization Act, H.R. 2565 and S. 2952. Bipartisan authors, Democrats, Republicans coming together, Cory Booker of New Jersey, a Democrat, Rand Paul, a Republican of Kentucky in the Senate, uh, Vern Buchanan, a Republican of Florida, Elaine Luria, a Democrat of Virginia, along with a host of other lawmakers of both parties were backing this legislation. What it does, Peter, is it eliminates an animal testing mandate derived from a 1938 statute, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. And it requires drug developers to only submit animal testing data when they want a new drug approved by our U.S. Food and Drug Administration. So FDA is supposed to be screening drugs to make sure they're safe for us, but they're relying on data from animal tests that are typically not predictive of the human response to drugs. So there's a basic flaw in our drug development system. Passing the FDA Modernization Act is a giant step forward for safer, more effective drugs, and it will also save, in the end, millions of animals. Are other countries ahead of the U.S. in uh, understanding these limitations and the problems in animal testing? And are we learning from them if, if they are ahead of us? Yes, they, they are. And the European Union, which is 27 countries in that, in that you know, political organization um, that covers most of Europe, has passed uh, legislation basically saying they want to end all animal testing, right? So there are many categories of animal testing. There's, you know, drug development, there, uh, there's testing for pesticides, chemicals, um, cosmetics. There are multiple categories of testing. And then, you know, there are animal experiments, there are animals used in education and teaching. It used to be that medical schools had dog labs, you know, perhaps you confronted that when you were getting your MD. Um, so there are many different categories, but the biggest category, and based on, on all that I know and our experts know, is that private uses of animals by drug developers, the biggest, biggest category. So we've got a lot of work to do, uh, but we have a, an amazing coalition of even pharmaceutical companies that are now getting on board because they don't want to waste money on testing strategies that are failures and that then force them to abandon uh, a drug that failed an animal test that wasn't ever uh, tested in human beings. It might have worked in human beings, uh, but it's enormously expensive. It's one of the reasons why a very high drug price, we have very high drug prices 
because the companies on average have to invest one to six billion dollars for every new drug development protocol. And how long this does means, it take? How long does it take to develop a drug? It takes on average eight to fifteen years, right? And if we had had this circumstance, Peter, for the 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 vaccine for for uh, COVID nineteen, we'd still be dying in droves, right? I mean, yeah. obviously, we still we still are. A lot of people are 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 uh, are suffering badly from the virus, but the reality is, we got that vaccine in one year because the FDA broke the rules. They didn't go through the normal battery of animal tests. They went right to human clinical trials. Now, they did animal tests in parallel that didn't yield much of anything valuable for medical science and for the vaccine's uh, effectiveness or safety. We had millions of people who had the, the virus, and, and that was sufficient in having us understand what was going on. So imagine if we had to wait 10 years for the vaccine. I mean, it, yep. it, it, yep. it really would have resulted in millions more people dead. So where do the bills stand right now? So we're in, a, and we're in the two-year Congress. So each Congress lasts for two years. We're in the second year of it. So it's the second session of the 117th Congress, 117 Congresses since the government was formed. And there are two chambers in Congress, the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. Um, each citizen in America has one U.S. representative and two U.S. senators. So if you're in Arizona, you have two U.S. senators, uh, Mark Kelly and Kirsten Sinema, and then you've got uh, a U.S. representative. And, and uh, each representative represents about 700, 750,000 people. So there are bills, uh, H.R. 2565 in the House, called the FDA Modernization Act. It has 25 Republican co-sponsors and 25 Democrat co-sponsors. The Senate bill is S-2952 by Rand Paul and Cory Booker. It has a number of other co-sponsors, but it even leans Republican, which is very rare for an animal welfare bill yeah. to have a majority of Republicans. So this, I think, really reflects the work of the Center for Humane Economy and Animal Wellness Action. We take a nonpartisan approach to animal welfare issues. We take a nonpartisan approach to science uh, issues. And all of us in our society should be good to animals. All of us should adhere to the notion that we should not use animals unnecessarily uh, in testing. All of us should adhere to the notion that cruelty to animals is wrong. So when we go on Capitol Hill and talk to lawmakers, we go and speak to them regardless of their party affiliations. And, you know, no one should want to use animals if you have an alternative method. And why should we have a government mandate dating back to the Depression era to require animal testing when we've had so much innovation in science, especially in the last decade? Wayne, uh, let's conclude with uh, two ideas. One, if you would uh, tell listeners how they can help, how can they uh, uh, push this along, and then how can they learn more about your organization, please? Well, we have a portal. So our my organizations, uh, I'm fortunate to serve as president of the Center for a Humane Economy. That's centerforahumaneeconomy.org and also animalwellnessaction.org. And we have alerts that allow you, if you go to the to the action navigation tool at either website, you can basically go to, to a contact form and write to your lawmakers. We've got everything kind of set up for you. You've, you have a, a, a letter that's already developed. You can tweak it as you wish. Use our action platform and get your 
uh, three letters sent to your two U.S. senators and your U.S. representative in just minutes. And then we'll hold on to your name and keep you updated as the legislation uh, moves forward. We also have uh, a microsite that's devoted just to the FDA Modernization Act. It's called modernizedtesting.org. So if any of your listeners, Peter, want to really learn more about this, we have fact sheets, we have science that's aggregated on this issue. We have uh, the roster of endorsements, you know, many scientists speaking out on this issue. And folks can go to that site as well and get information. I think that's the best way is to sign up, uh, go to our site, uh, sign up in the form so you can get our alerts and we'll let you know when there's a pulse of activity. We'll tell you when the, the bill is coming up for a vote in a key committee or on the floor of a chamber and when you really need to push those buttons and contact your lawmakers. But, you know, social change for animals is a participatory sport. It's not a spectator process, right? We have to be involved in the process. These folks work for us. We elect them. There are so many other people with other issues and causes, many of them very worthy competing for their attention. We have to be the ones to raise our voices and demand action on these issues. We have an incredible opportunity, the biggest opportunity to take a big bite out of animal testing ever in the United States, in my opinion. Here, here. Wayne Paselli, thank you very much. Great to be with you. Okay, stick around. More with the show after this break. dog has bitten a person and the animal shelter in California is aware of this information, then the shelter must disclose this knowledge prior to allowing someone to adopt the dog. This is California's new dog bite law. Here are my thoughts about this and my reaction to the prior discussion we had with legal dog bite expert Ken Phillips. Dogs bite. Just because a dog has bitten someone doesn't necessarily mean that dog is vicious or a bad dog or a reason to destroy that dog. Dogs bite when they're protecting their property. Dogs bite trying to protect their owner. They can bite trying to protect themselves or their food or toys. They might bite when they're harassed or provoked. They can bite when they're frightened or scared. I've been bitten by dogs. I was bitten when I picked up an injured dog in the middle of the road. He was bleeding, he had broken bones, and he was scared and in pain. Is that a justified bite? You bet it was. I was bitten by my own dog when we were caught in a situation where my dog was trying to protect me. An unintended, inadvertent bite, I would call it, but it happens. My nephew was bitten by a dog while he was petting a dog. We later found out that the dog had a severe, untreated ear infection, and my nephew touched the dog on his sensitive, painful ear. Does that mean that dog's a bad dog? Should we punish that dog for hurting my nephew? I have a friend whose dog bit a young boy who jumped in the yard to retrieve his basketball. Dog was protecting his property. Do you think that's justified? Should the dog be punished for that? Legally speaking, would the dog be punished for that? So someone relinquishes their dog to the shelter and says, my dog bites. Now the shelter workers in California have to disclose to any potential adopter that this dog bites. Shelter workers should be honest if he or she knows something about the dog's history. They should disclose what they know. I absolutely agree with that. 
But is it really fair to the dog to simply say this dog has bitten someone without disclosing the circumstances behind that bite? I mean, by saying this dog bites, you automatically stigmatize that dog. Some people would indeed equate a dog that bites to a vicious dog. If a shelter worker says to you, okay, before you adopt this dog, legally I need to tell you that this dog has bitten in the past. Most everyone, I would imagine, would not want to adopt that dog. If a shelter worker said to me, this dog is a bite history, I'd say, okay, dogs bite. What's the circumstances behind that bite? They would likely say, I don't know, because it's impossible for the truth to be known. But I'm not sure I'd want to adopt that dog either without knowing more information. And you know what happens to that dog? In all likelihood, that dog is deemed unadoptable. And in many U.S. shelters, the dog is destroyed. So, wow, we didn't even know the truth behind the bite. And we didn't even want to give that dog the benefit of the doubt. And yet the dog doesn't have a chance for a home, does he? If I'm told by the school principal that my child punched another kid, I need to know a little more information about what transpired. I don't think my child would just punch a kid for no reason. Was it justified? Maybe my child was being bullied, so he punched the bully. For a shelter to be forced by law to make public that a dog bites without any additional information just seems a little unfair. That's all I'm saying here. And it's impossible for the shelter workers to know the true facts surrounding a dog bite or if the dog even really bit someone. But now, in two states, they are forced to pass along and make public any information told to them by anyone about a dog. Say someone relinquishes a dog to a shelter because they say this dog nipped their baby. Now that shelter worker says to a potential adopter, hey, this dog's a baby biter. You know that dog's never going to be adopted. If I heard this, my first thought would be, why is this dog, any dog, allowed to be in close proximity to a baby? And what happened? Who's the owner? And where was the owner? Perhaps this dog is not a good fit for this particular family with a baby. Should this one incident make it so the dog loses all chances of getting into a home and becoming part of someone's family? Should we destroy the dog because all we know is that we heard from someone that this dog nipped a baby? I don't know. Do we destroy dogs for nipping babies regardless of the owner's stupidity and the circumstances that led up to the bite? Now, from the perspective of the shelter workers, they know if they disclose to a potential adopter that a dog bites, it's very likely the dog will never get adopted. So depending on that shelter's policies, they might automatically deem that dog unadoptable or vicious and the dog gets killed. I have known and I've worked with many shelter staff and despite what some people think, they don't enjoy killing dogs. Most of the shelter workers and rescue groups I've worked with try really hard to match a particular dog with the right kind of family. And that's the key here, isn't it? With any adoption of a dog or a cat to a new home and family, the shelter workers and rescue groups need to take a good history and interview the potential adopter, which not all shelters do. There are some shelters that will adopt out any dog to any person who wants that dog. I know a shelter that adopted an energetic, strong, big puppy who grew to be an 80-pound dog 
to a 91-year-old man who lives alone. You think that 90-year-old, who depends on a cane, by the way, will be able to adequately socialize and exercise the dog and offer the dog the stimulation that a puppy needs? And what will happen when this big, strong, energetic puppy accidentally hurts the man or pulls the man to the ground on a morning walk? Or what happens to the dog when the 91-year-old dies tomorrow? Not so smart of the shelter worker and very selfish of the man who wanted a puppy. I mean, what the hell was he thinking? So shelters need to ask questions. Do you live alone? Do you have other pets? Do you have kids? How old are your kids? Have you owned a dog before? If so, what happened to that dog? Did you get your prior dogs fixed or vaccinated? If not, why? Can you afford food for the dog? Where are you going to keep the dog? Tied up in the backyard or home all day while you're working? A lot of information about you and your lifestyle need to be known to assist in making a good match. Generally speaking, shelters and rescue groups want you to be happy with the animal you adopt from them. They want you to be happy with your new family member. They want it to be a lifelong loving home for the animal. They don't want you to return the dog back to them because it didn't work out or the dog wasn't the right fit. Every shelter and rescue group should have a dog adoption questionnaire and an an adoption process and spend a little time trying to make a good match. Unfortunately, many of them don't. Recently, Peter and I were walking at the street fair with one of our dogs, Skye. We got Skye from a shelter, and this was not from a no-kill shelter. And she's a pit bull. And yes, our shelters are overwhelmed with pit bulls. The shelter we obtained Skye from, more than 70% of the dogs there were pit bulls or pit bull mixes. Pretty much the rest of the dogs were chihuahuas. So yes, our shelters are overflowing with pits because they're being bred to death, literally. Because we are destroying these particular dogs because there's just too many of them. What a shame. What a shame we breed dogs. What a shame breeders exist. So had we not adopted Skye, she would likely have been killed by the shelter. Anyway, we're at the street fair and we came across a woman with a golden retriever. Oh, they're such nice dogs, aren't they? Much nicer than our vicious pit bulls. Well, this golden retriever was on a leash held by a woman, lunged toward and growled at our Skye. It was obvious the dog wanted to go after Skye. And this woman almost lost hold of her leash when her dog nearly pulled her to the ground when he was lunging. Thankfully, nothing bad happened. This woman scolded her dog and was trying to control him as we quickly scooted in the other direction. And this was a crowded place, so there were many people who observed this incident. And people around us, and we especially, were relieved that what potentially could have been a horrible scene was not. Then a few people sort of chuckled and looked at us and made friendly, joking comments because to them, it was sort of a funny situation to see that a pit bull was almost attacked by a golden retriever because that's the mindset of most people. The pit bull is the bad dog and the golden is the good dog. Let's say the golden retriever did get loose from her owner and attacked our dog. Now there's a dog fight and inevitably someone, dog, human, someone is going to get hurt. So who's liable for any bodily damage either dog does to someone? And how many ways can the story be told and interpreted? I relinquish Skye back to the shelter, hypothetical here, of course, and I tell the shelter workers, my pit bull dog bit another dog, a golden retriever, but this golden instigated the entire fight. Do you think the shelter will believe my story? Now that shelter in California 
is legally obligated to tell the bite history of Skye to any potential adopter. Hey, before you adopt this pit bull, I need to tell you he has a bite history. Oh, what happened? A golden retriever bit this dog, so the pit bull bit him back. Will people believe that? Now, let's say the woman with the golden retriever relinquishes her dog to the shelter because the breeder who she purchased the dog from is not going to take that dog back because breeders don't do that. Breeders breed dogs for profit, and the hardworking shelters and rescue groups are the dumping grounds for unwanted dogs that breeders produce. So this woman takes her golden to the shelter and says, my dog was bitten by a pit bull. Aha! Now that's a believable story. How would you define a dangerous dog? Don't go away. We're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, it's Lori Kirshner from Animals Today, and here's your Animals Today Minute. Xylitol is a sweetener that is commonly used in sugar-free gum and candy, toothpaste, mouthwash, baked goods, and chewable vitamins. Xylitol is safe for humans, but can be extremely toxic to dogs. Luckily, cats do not seem to be interested in eating foods with xylitol. But in dogs, even small amounts of xylitol can cause hypoglycemia, that's low blood sugar, seizures, liver failure, and even death. The effects can appear as quickly as 10 minutes after ingestion. If your dog has eaten a xylitol-containing item, bring him or her to your veterinarian or emergency animal hospital immediately, even if there's no symptoms yet. He or she should be monitored there for 12 to 24 hours just to be safe. Also, please be aware that some nut butters now have xylitol as an added ingredient, so check your labels. And of course, don't let your dogs get at your chewing gum and mints. These are serious dangers causing the FDA to release a consumer alert on the risks to dogs, which you can read at fda.gov consumer. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner with your Animals Today Minute for the day. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to informing the public about the overpopulation program and the spay-neuter solution through outdoor advertising. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. This is Dr. Lori, and you're listening to Animals Today. I'm proud to say that Animals Today is now in its 12th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Visit them at aianimals.org. And if you like listening to this radio show and you like what we're doing, consider making a donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals to support the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Their website is aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And click Support Us. Welcome back to Animals Today. I do believe there are dogs that are dangerous. Is it the dog's fault the dog is dangerous or vicious? He or she wasn't born vicious because all dogs are good dogs. It's always the owner 
who made the dog into a bad dog or a vicious dog. But what's the definition of vicious anyway? Vicious might have its own legal definition. But it seems to me that the definition of vicious or dangerous is purely subjective, right? I mean, what I think is a vicious dog might be different than what you think is a vicious dog and different than the person who was attacked by a dog when she was a child thinks is a vicious dog. In addition, maybe that dog's only dangerous in a given situation or environment or around certain kinds of people. We had a wonderful dog, Paco. Paco didn't like people who spoke the Spanish language. Paco was not a dangerous dog. Paco was not a racist dog. But we just made sure that the Spanish language was not spoken around Paco. And I'm just assuming Paco was abused by a person who spoke Spanish. And that's the point. If you know a dog is not comfortable in a given situation or environment and or you do not approve of the dog's behavior in a given environment or around certain people or other dogs, you might have to make some adjustments in your lifestyle to keep your dog and your family and everyone around you safe and happy. It's not hard, maybe a little inconvenient, but so what? That's life and that's what you do. So we're talking about the definition of a dangerous dog, purely subjective. And you know, even shelters have their own definition of a dangerous dog. A lot of shelters have what's called temperament testing to determine if dogs are dangerous or vicious in certain situations. And other shelters don't use any sort of method of testing or evaluation. They might deem a dog vicious by the dog's bite history or whatever random indiscriminate means they choose. And not all shelter employees are experienced with dog behavior. And you might just be dealing with a scared dog who was recently picked up off the streets and who was lost from his home. And that dog might very well cower in the corner or growl at anyone who enters his kennel. Or maybe the dog was in an abusive situation and again might not want to trust or be kind to you or any human initially. Are these vicious dogs? No, they're scared. And they're certainly not going to do well on any temperament test or any sort of evaluation given by a complete stranger. My own dogs, if lost for me and picked up and thrown into a loud, scary shelter cage, would likely fail any tests and might very well be deemed vicious or dangerous. And realistically, who's going to want to adopt a dog who is labeled vicious anyway? Yeah, the dog is probably not vicious by your standards, but you're not going to want to adopt that dog. And you certainly have to question the motives of the adopter who wants to adopt a dog labeled as vicious. What's he going to do with that dog? Use him as a fighting dog? Sell him to a research lab? I don't know. But the thing is, for the most part, from my experience, shelters don't adopt out dogs that they think are truly vicious. And it boils down to what your definition of vicious is. I know there are exceptions, okay? but I don't see shelters adopting out dogs that they think will turn around and hurt other people or animals. Now, having said that, there have been a few instances I'm aware of where dogs should not have been released to the public at the time they were. I'm not saying these dogs were vicious. What I'm saying is more training or socialization or rehabilitation should have been offered to that dog and then reassessed establishing this dog is okay to be adopted out to a given person or family. 
And by the way, this is an entirely different topic we can talk about another time, but earlier in the show, the term no-kill shelter was mentioned. And you might know this already, but just because a shelter claims they are no-kill doesn't mean they never kill a dog. I know it might sound like a misleading term if a shelter describes itself as a no-kill shelter and they kill a dog, but some shelters might say they are no-kill, and that usually means they strive for that, okay? I mean, they might be situations where they do kill a dog. Like if a dog is suffering and essentially untreatable, like a dog was hit by a car and has internal bleeding and broken bones and barely breathing, of course, any humane shelter would euthanize that dog. Now that's the real definition of euthanasia, by the way, taking an individual out of its misery. Now, I will tell you that what often happens in these no-kill shelter settings, since they strive not to kill animals unless they have to, unfortunately, you get some dogs and cats there in that shelter for a very long time, and they can develop extreme kennel stress and anxiety from their lengthy stays. Just like any individual cooped up in a small place with little stimulation for a long time will go a little stir-crazy. Again, this doesn't make the dog a dangerous dog. So what's the bottom line? Our country still has millions of homeless dogs and cats that are in need of a loving forever home. We are still killing millions of unwanted animals in our shelters every year. Don't buy a dog from a breeder, okay? If you're wanting to add a dog or cat to your family, consider visiting your local shelter. Check out the animals just waiting there to be a part of your family. And if you end up adopting from a shelter, in all likelihood, you'll be saving a life. And that's a good thing. And dogs bite. And let's not conflate a dog that bites with a vicious or dangerous dog. My parents' little 12-pound rescued Maltese chiclet would bite certain individuals who would approach my mother. Is chiclet a vicious dog? No, little fluffy white chiclet is not a vicious dog and would never be labeled vicious. But if my mother had a pit bull and that same person approached her and the pit bull was trying to protect my mother, that's a different story. That dog's vicious. And we all know why this is the case. Number one, Larger dogs can do more damage when they bite than smaller dogs, just on the basis of their size of their mouth and teeth. And number two, pit bulls have a bad rap. And that's because many people are misinformed about pit bulls. Given the same situation and under the same circumstances, why are certain dog breeds automatically deemed vicious and others are not? Two little dogs the size of a large rat have bitten the nose of one of our large dogs minding his own business. Who's the vicious one? Maybe no one. Dogs bite. A woman asked her veterinarian, is there any chance my dog will bite someone? The veterinarian's response was, does it have teeth? Thanks for tuning into Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Mm-hmm.